Okay, we're recording now. Okay, Rabotai. We've already took note that Harambam's view of Torah is that Torah itself is an esoteric work. It's a hidden work. Torah itself is written in code. What does it mean for something to be written in code? It means that the Torah is interested in hiding its true message. Why? You have to raise the question, why must Torah hide its essential true message? Answer? Because the average person, the masses, cannot understand, appreciate, or even tolerate what the Torah really wants to teach about the essential, necessary truths of life itself. The masses, as opposed to the philosophical elite, need a different set of, in quotes, truth. They cannot deal with ultimate, absolute truth. They can deal with a watered-down version of what truth is really all about. As we go along, you will see all the examples that the Rambam and others give in order to explain and express that particular notion. An average person in the street, your average businessman, does not want to deal with God the abstraction. Can't deal with that. And yet Torah needs the average person in the street. The masses have to be part and parcel of the program. Torah would have failed if it did not attract, mesmerize, hypnotize, include the masses. Torah was not meant to be an exclusive religion only for the philosophical elite, only for the Boshe Rabbeinus. Rather, for Torah to ultimately accomplish its ultimate goal, which is to spread the teachings of spirituality and ethics to the entire world, you need to have a critical mass. Critical mass of people means numbers. Numbers means the masses. Masses means we must have everybody included. But how do I do that? How do I include the masses and yet, on the other hand, not exclude the philosophical elite? Because if you only simply tell a third grade message, you're going to exclude anybody who's not on, who's way beyond that third grade level. That's a difficult question. A mass person, an average person in the street, needs to keep the basic religious ritualistic life with very simple ideas. Ideas they can work with. They cannot work certain ideas. What? I have to be the 1005. I yeah, 1005. Good. So the average mass person does not want anything that takes a lot of thought, a lot of energy, a lot of mental energy. That's not what the average person needs. That average person cannot fully appreciate the depth of ideas that the Torah wants to speak about. More so, that person is threatened by those ideas. If he has a basic world view, every idea that you express as leader of that congregation, let's say, Jewish people, has to fit very neatly into the right place in his world view. If there's an idea that is so difficult, if there's an idea that is so out of that framework, he finds that threatening, challenging, and he's intolerant of that new idea. Give me a classic example of someone with a new philosophical idea, philosophical idea, that was so challenging to the 
harmonious structure that that man was persecuted by that new idea. Now in the sciences you find it all the time. Galileo of course, anybody in that sort, yes. But a philosophical slash religious idea, give me one example, the most famous example that you're going to find is Spinoza. Very good. Spinoza comes along with a new idea of God. A completely new idea of God. And one which shut the lights on everybody in that period of time. Which is astounding, which is exactly what happened. It was amazing how that actually took place. It's amazing, again, it's amazing how that took place. Spinoza comes along with a very spiritual idea about God. An idea of God that's so radical that he is known as the God-intoxicated philosopher. It's all about God. Everything's about God. Now, admittedly, one has to analyze to what degree Spinoza was off base. What degree? Spinoza's two great works, one was about idea of God, where God is infinite extension, which means God is everything, and therefore he's also called a pantheist, on the one hand. On the other hand, his other great work was ethics. How to live the right kind of life. How to do everything that's ethical. And his whole entire second work is all about ethics, all about structuring ethics on a mathematical model, so you're able to determine very clearly, very simply, what's the ethically right thing to do. Often, we are perplexed as to the right ethical decision that one should make. Ethics is a, not a clear science. I give a class on Tuesday nights about ethical dilemmas, where it's lose-lose. You cannot win whatever you choose ethically. And often you're going to find those ethical dilemmas. Ethics, you have to choose, it's based on personality, it's based on mood, it's based on how you evaluate, based on a lot of different issues. Ethics is a very difficult area in order to decide what to do. Spinoza wanted to decide exactly, I want to put ethics on a geometric basis, mathematical model, so it be clear. In this case you do X, in this case you do Y, we need to have a very clear structure. But Spinoza, for all of his ethics, and all of his God intoxication, is deemed to be a heretic and he's thrown out of the ballpark. It's interesting because rather than throw him out of the ballpark and brand him into a atheist, as he was called by some, strangely enough, and a heretic by others, why not just <coughs> leave him in the ballpark, leave him in the community, and deal with his ideas? Deal with the ideas. Reject them. Say they're wrong. Argue about them. Why do you have to make him to a heretic? Which is a frightening scene. In 17th century Holland, when Amsterdam, he was brand a heretic, not only physically thrown out of the community, he has to lie down on the entranceway to the synagogue, everybody has to walk over him, trample him. Wow. wow. You think it's easy to be a heretic? Ask those who know about it. Yes. Wow. So there was an entire rite, R-I-T-E, which had to be done in order to brand the person a heretic. So he lies down, face down, everybody steps on him. Humiliation. Why would he submit to it? Because he... Because... Yeah, kick him out anyway. Goodbye. <laughs> there's, first of all, there's degrees of heresy okay. and degrees of need for the community. And also, what happens when you have no community, you're a Jew, who else is going to accept you? It was a very difficult situation. Not important for right now. There's wonderful books on the on the biography of Spinoza. Uh, wonderful books about what he went through and why this happened. He was a young man also. Very, very young. And it might have been wise Jewish community to incorporate him, to bring him into the community, deal, argue, challenge, 
He was a very young man, 28 when he was 28 or 30, 31 when he was actually excommunicated, and it might have been just a wise. Similarly, interesting, the Gemara has a statement about Yeshu himself, the founder of Christianity, about Yeshu that we should have pushed him away with his ideas, but also we should have with one hand. Push him away with one hand and accept him with the other hand. Why? Because we threw him out and the Christians out. The end they created a whole new religion that ultimately spread our ideas. Whatever's good in Christianity is Jewish. Whatever's not good is pagan. Christianity became a merge between the monotheism, the ethical monotheism of Judaism along with a pagan framework. So the paganism part was horrific to us. It led to the Christian church and everything else that's terrible about it. Its ethical, spiritual message is from us. So if we could have incorporated that, sort of like a friendly buyout in business. It's a friendly buyout. Don't go head to head, buy them out, incorporate and grow bigger in a friendly kind of a takeover situation. So if one, theoretically, the Gemara is saying to us in Sadeh that one should have done that with Christianity as well. You created a world religion that's quasi-pagan, sadly enough, that took our ideas and paganized them and put them into a negative context and therefore we lost and hundreds of thousands of Jews suffered horrible torment because of that mistake we made. And the rabbis realized that. So two, three hundred years after Christianity, the rabbis made that statement in the Gemara itself where it should have been the case where you would you should push him away. Yes, he's wrong. But also bring him in as well and we paid a very serious price for that. So it's quite an interesting question of how to deal with heretical ideas. Call them heretical. Spinoza, Christianity, call it heretical. Yes, it's heretical, fine. Although one has to define very clearly what's in and what's out, but that's not my issue right now. So you have over here a situation where you have these kinds of ideas and the Jewish community pushes you out. Pushes you out. But the Torah, on the other hand, has this very profound idea that the masses cannot handle and because the mass cannot handle it they push you out they excommunicate you rather than including you and modifying your ideas in some fashion maybe achieve some kind of compromise with Spinoza in some way to have him change his ideas keep your ideas to yourself you could be in but keep your ideas to yourself I understand you have quest for truth perhaps and you really need to express your ideas but keep it to yourself we'll say write them down and 50 years from now or 20 years from now or 10 years from now we'll talk about it again you're a young man think about your ideas hone them sharpen them clarify them to yourself one on one the rabbis will talk to you about it but don't push them out but the community cannot tolerate those fringe ideas admittedly they're fringe perhaps they're, they're heretical whatever you want to call them whatever you want to call them, but rather than throw them out, let them flourish on their own in one way or another, you should absorb them somehow. Absorb them, change them, deal with them, is my point. But the point over here, the Rambam is making about the Torah itself, is that Torah has this profound idea that the masses cannot handle, and therefore Torah is written in a code. The mass cannot tolerate those ideas, rather the masses throw you out of the community and therefore the Torah had to be written in code. A, because Torah needs the masses, needs everybody to become a world religion of spirituality, of ethics, what we all want from Torah itself. Torah needs the masses. Torah cannot only work with Moshe Rabbeinu. It's not going to happen. 
shows only one man and at one point or other is going to have to work with the masses to bring them along in a slow evolutionary fashion. So that's what happens over here. Now the Rambam realizes this and the Rambam is determined to write a book called Morei Nebuchim which is going to bridge the gap between the mass teachings of Torah itself and the hidden core message, the philosophical truth that the intellectual knows, appreciates. Remember his introduction. The Rambam in the introduction tells you he's writing to a personal letter to a student. The student is perplexed. He's perplexed by the Torah's mass message the mass match everybody else on the one hand. On the other hand, this man has studied philosophy and understands that that mass message is not correct. It's not true. It's not true. So therefore, this man is now perplexed. The Rambam is right to guide to the perplexed to bridge the gap between he was committed in his heart to the religious teachings of the Torah on the one hand. On the other hand, his mind tells him, this is absurd. Now give me the most prominent example of the absurdity in quotes of the Torah's message. The most obvious example of that is... Exactly, very good. This has been studying in Israel for a while. The physicality of God. Is not God described corporeally, physically, in a most egregious, horrifying, absurd fashion? The answer is yes. When you talk about God's flailing nostrils, Haron Af means flailing nostrils. Yad Chazakah. God goes up, goes down, he sees things. Back of his neck. Back of his neck. <laughs> Absurd. You just have to read something, give us something to relate to that. Easy for you to say. And because you're so advanced and developed that you could tolerate that message. But hold on. The pure philosopher. Picture in your mind. Is God. Do you picture your mind of God? Of course not. God's anger. You can relate to it as a human being. You can't relate to it. I don't want all these fancy explanations. Torah tells me God's physical. I believe God's physical. And I'm a heretic now. Yeah. So it's the opposite. I think the, the Torah and its word, and I'm a heretic by the Rambam if I believe in the word of the Torah. I believe in the Peshutosh Mikra. And what the Torah tells me I'm a heretic. Exactly the opposite I was saying before. Rambam says, if you believe the physicality of God, you're a heretic, you're out of the ball game. Wow. It's astounding how ages reverse themselves. But that's a great point. And the Rambam and others were able to reverse that trend wherein that if you believed in the Torah's simple straightforward message simple straightforward message then you're a heretic so we've gone far along you've come a long way baby in that whereas the Torah makes a simple statement you accept it then you're a heretic but that's good that's what Torah wants you to do Torah did not want you to believe it's simple message of the physicality of God the corporeality of God now the next step above is the emotions of God, known in terminology as anthropopathisms, as opposed to the first statement, which is anthropomorphisms. Does God have emotions? Does God have emotions? The answer is, as God has no physical attributes, one may offer the statement and say that God does not have emotions either. God does not become angry. God does not become overly joyous. You do mitzvot. And even God has not become depressed when you do something wrong. Give me a pasuk which... displeased? My next one never becomes displeased when I'm on my lawn. Does God become displeased? 
Does he love? Eddie, Eddie Levy loves me. Yes, he does love me. People doing what he doesn't like. What he look how many look how many absurd statements just made. He becomes it. So that's the problem of God. What do you call him? What do you do with him? God is an abstract idea that has life. In a certain manner, I guess God has life. That's the problem of the perplexed. You hit it on the head. So the Rambam's against any kind of anthropomorphisms. God's not physical. Anthropopathisms. God is not emotional. God cannot become displeased. How could he? How could it? God, there's nothing, there's no, um, what's emotions? Is if it's physically based or emotionally based, God has none of that. How can he become displeased? That's so human. All too human, in the words of Nietzsche. It's too human. No. What Pasuk tells me that God does become depressed, that I have to reject or reinterpret? Famous Pasuk. Man, God sees. I don't know if God sees either. There's no eyes. But how does he see? Okay, God perceives. God understands. I don't know. However you talk about God. Really, the Ram tell you only can talk about God negatively, can't talk about God positively any which way. But okay, we need to talk about God. Okay, good. So God sees in some manner or form the doings of mankind. God regrets. Ooh. God could regret, which raised all kinds of issues over here. I don't know how God could regret. God knew what's going to happen. Big problem. God regrets. But Atsev Elibo. He's saddened unto his heart. So what does that mean? God actually comes sad? It's so difficult. It's so difficult. That's why Rambam wrote Morena Bukhim. To take all of those difficult words and phrases, which are impossible to be spoken about God, and to retranslate them into a philosophically precise language. It's a book of translation. The book wants to translate all of those absolutely impossible terms. That's what I needed and had to use. Let's emphasize that point. Torah is the most perfect book written because it's able to take that impossible message and communicate it to the masses and not lose the philosophical elite along the way. That's the right risk you run. If you write philosophically, you lose the masses. But I need the masses. If I write on a mass level, then I lose the philosophical elite. Who's going to lead the people? Yet Torah is written in that extraordinarily perfect way that's able to engage and hypnotize and mesmerize the masses such that they don't abandon Torah. On the other hand, the greatest minds of the Jewish people were able to take Torah and understand it in its philosophically appropriate fashion. Torah has succeeded in doing that. Why? Good. Why, why create the world in the beginning? Why create man? Why create well, the question of why create God, why create the world in the beginning is a completely different question. Well, well you're dealing with God has no physical attributes, has no emotional attributes. And what, what's the and I could answer that question based <laughs> on need to part 3, chapter 13. Is the answer to that question. So go on, read it. See, 13 or 17. I think it's 13. Read both. I think it's 13. Based on a pasuk in Mishle, chapter 4, or 16. One of those two chapters. Answers that question. Why create the world at the beginning? Which is very much contrary to Sa'ajah's, in his Imrot Vedi'ot, Amanat Aitiqad, his book of beliefs and opinions, has a completely different answer as to why create the world at the very beginning. The Ram has the right answer. Sa'ajah, I think, is wrong. Obviously, the Rambam, Nusa Aja, and the Rambam had a completely different answer. And Rambam's 
really on the mark, hits the target in that to answer that question. Part three, chapter thirteen, based on Mishleh, you'll find that answer, but not for now. Torah got it right. Four thousand years later, we still study Torah with people of extraordinary intelligence. No matter how you slice the cake, the Rambam had extraordinary mind. Bring it mind. You say that I'm only being narrowly, chauvinistically Jewish and saying that. No, that's an absurd, foolish statement. Because I look at the work that he produced. You look at Mishneh Torah. A complete conceptualization of, let's say, a million details of halachic lore and lore. L-A-W and L-A-R-R-E. It's astounding how in a pre... Even with a computer, you'd have a hard time doing this. But the Rambam takes this million details of Jewish law, let's say, for now, and puts into a package detail, included package, including all things that are relevant for now, yesterday, tomorrow, puts it all over here, and still, 850 years later, it still is the usable work of Jewish law. No Porsek, no matter what his name is, does not consult with the Mishneh Torah before he decides any law. Okay, who he is, what his name is, where he lives, he must look at the Rambam Shet Torah before you deal with any Jewish law, period. Absolutely. There are no words that one can use to express contempt at a Posek who does not study the Rambam. If he's a Posek, if, if, if you're a philosopher, you may not study Mishneh Torah. That's possible. If you're a philosopher, don't study Mishneh Torah. I think it's foolish. We had that experience in graduate school where I sat in uh, with people that knew more than backwards and forwards, upsides and down, and they studied this book. And it was this is no, this is my first edition of the Morena Nebuchim. And we have all the others, the Arabic we have, and the Hebrews we have all of those. Good. But we use the most expert translation of the Arabic. My Arabic is not expert in philosophical Arabic. Okay, so we use Penis's translation. Very nice. I marveled at Professor Hyman, for example, who had the book look like this and worse, but it was his third edition. Third time he had the book. Third copy of the book. He would read much more than me. Unfortunately, or fortunately, I became a rabbi. I don't have time to do it. Well, he did. The book is that mess. And on a daily basis, you go, you go to sleep with the Rambam. That's the Rambam. It's all about the Rambam. That's what it's about. Now, if he didn't study Mishneh Torah, okay, I understand it. And I would often, as rabbinically trained, raise questions on the professors. Seymour Feldman, for example, was a professor at Rutgers for many years, on the Rambam from Mishneh Torah. He would smirk at me. You know what it's like to be a grass would get smirked at? Very you're, you're insecure to begin with. Terribly insecure. And what am I doing, this elite institution, getting a PhD when what do I know? And they make you ask the question, what do you know? Because you know nothing. In graduate work, you are you feel insecure in graduate school? Like really insecure, like like two cents? Absolutely oh good, I not me. That's why I He's one of the smartest guys that I know. He was the smartest guys that I know, and if he felt the way, then I feel good having felt the same way that he felt. It's an initiation. Right? Initiation, right? That your, you know, no, nothing. If you mature to that point, but you finished, I didn't finish yet. So you got there. You could you could laugh at me still. Vizatu was right. Thirty-five years later, we're still writing this thesis of ours. So when you when you write and finish it, then you, and he got there, then you could say. I mature to the point where I know what they're doing to what they did to me was only initiation, nothing more than that. So, and I'd ask these questions, I'd get smirked at because that was naive, foolish. How could you raise a question from Mishneh Torah to Morena Bukhim? And yet, I've, I think he, now I realize that he was foolish, and I'll tell him that. 
Because Mishneh Torah is as philosophical in a different guise as Murei Nebuchim is. But he never read it. He didn't get it. He didn't see it. Okay, good. So now Torah got it right. Torah, 4,000 years later, we see that it's still engaging, hypnotizing the masses. There are at least a million Jews that live their lives by Torah itself. It is the oldest ongoing legislation that's still in use today. It's an amazing statement, underappreciated by people. Torah is the longest ongoing legislative system, law code, that's still in use today. It's amazing. Far surpasses Roman law. Far surpasses it. Amazing statement that we've done. Torah is still used as a legislative body that's consulted on an ongoing daily basis by a million Jews at least. Amazing. So now how was this accomplished is the question. How did I do it? Answer the Ramah will tell you it wrote its message in code. It appealed both to the philosopher as well as to the masses. And of course Moshe Rabbeinu was the perfect person to do that. Why? Because he was a philosopher, he understood the depth of Torah's message. On the other hand, he was a man of the people. This very same man who has his head, quote-unquote, in the clouds and is somebody who thought those speculative thoughts, speculative thoughts, philosopher is one who's in the clouds. In many contexts throughout the history of philosophy, there are many who laughed at the philosophers. Cicero is one of the great thinkers who laughed at philosophers as a clown, as a buffoon, who asked silly questions, who asked ridiculous questions, how many angels on the head of the pin, who's gazing at the stars. But on the other hand, Moshe Rabbeinu is Vayetzer El Echav. Moshe Rabbeinu felt for the people, cared about the people, was a man of the people, and yet had the philosophical thoughts. So the, the Rambam, as he portrays Moshe Rabbeinu, speaks about Moshe, Moshe as the philosopher par excellence on the one hand, on the other hand, as the man who is of the people, able to translate those philosophical truths that are so abstract and so difficult, so Spinozian on the one hand, into a language that people, the masses, understood, appreciated, and were able to live their lives by virtue of that translation. Therefore, Torah succeeded. The masses' emotional need for a God described in their own image was portrayed. On the other hand, he was able to maintain the philosophical dimension with the philosophical elite needed. Eli said it before. David said it before. People cannot deal with an abstract notion of a deity. It's absurd, it's silly. As silly as a pagan portrayal of God is, as foolish as it is, from one point of view, the other point of view, which is portraying God in his abstractness, completely beyond comprehensibility, thank you, beyond comprehensibility, that's God also, that's absurd for the masses. Both are absurd. So the idea is to be able to have your cake and eat it. As those of you who know me know that I often try to have my cake and eat it. I'm not comfortable with doing A or B. I'm a gray person. I'm very gray 
in all areas of life. I've noticed that about myself now as we approach the 60th year. That I'm not comfortable with decisions, I'm not comfortable with saying do this or that, I have to be pushed into decisions making. There's positive over here, there's negative over there, you have to evaluate and decide yes, no, maybe, not sure. But really, that's a reflection of really learning all of this. The nuances, the details, the different colorings, I'm not black or white. To be a businessman, you have to be black or white. You make the sale, you don't make the sale. You go in to make the sale. I'm not a good businessman. It's, things are much grayer to me. The guy, let's say the uh, buyer says, should I buy this? And I'm the seller. I said, well, maybe yes, maybe no, not sure. You may sell it, you may not sell it. I'm not really sure. If you don't sell it, I'll feel guilty about it. I wouldn't, don't hire me as a salesman. I may regret these, these words. I may come to you for a job one of these days as a salesman. I'll do it. If I got to it, I'll do it. But one second, sorry. But one second. But those, that element of me, which is suited well to perhaps a philosopher's role who sees all aspects and all sides, it really grows out of the Torah teachings itself as well. Because Torah is that document which, on the one hand, serves the needs of the masses very well, portraying God physically. On the other hand, the message always was, part of Torah Shabbat that don't take that message seriously of God being physically portrayed. God is not physical. There's no flowing nostrils, no outstretched arms, no yet hazaka. That's not God at all. At all. On the other hand, the Torah was able to communicate as it did its message to the masses, it did its message to the philosophers. Which says to the philosophers, and the Torah tells over here, that though we, though I, though Torah describes God physically, that don't take that. That's not true. God's not physical. So the philosopher lived the greatest minds. The Ram was one of the greatest minds in human history. Or contemporarily speaking, Rabbi Soloveitchik is able to read Torah meaningfully, philosophically, and extrapolate the message and you see this great mind of Rabbi Soloveitchik, and you see the works, you understand, you've heard it, it's a great mind, no question, it's a great mind. It, described by the New York Times, one of the greatest minds since um, Newton wrote his works. The last 500 years, one of the greatest of minds, a brilliant, brilliant mind. We've seen it, experienced it, astoundingly so. Great mind. Seeing what nobody else has seen, reading a text, just gets it. On the money. Incredibly so. It's very interesting how having studied with him and coming here and the very first day Manny Hamway said I want you to these tapes I won't say whose tapes it was from and he said I want you to these tapes it's great 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 and here I am from the halls of academia from the Rabbi Soloveitchik influencer trained and having heard the greatest rabbinic personalities of the 20th century discordancy you want me to listen to these tapes spend, spend spend uh, hours, it was absurd to me and I, and I didn't realize where I was supposed to be as a rabbi. I didn't realize that at the time. It was my mistake not to realize that. So of course I took the tapes and all that stuff. I didn't listen to them at all. I didn't have time for it. I still don't have time for it. It's 28 years later, but I may get to it, God willing. I wasn't listening to those tapes. But it was just so funny to me because having heard the brilliance of Rabbi Soloveitchik for years at that point in time, years and years, and then coming back and so you, you, and yet Rabbi Salvechik didn't abandon Torah. Why did he abandon Torah? Why did he just put it aside? This is, describes God physically. Just abandon it and then go on your own road. Because he saw the depth of Torah understanding. So Rabbi Salvechik on one hand, and on the other hand, the masses still follow Torah. Torah is still the book of the people. So the descriptions, as physical as they are, the anthropopathisms, as physical, as emotional as they are, the book works. Torah got it right. Sorry, Rabbi Salvechik.
So, just to conclude from what you're saying, I would say that Moshe Tarambam, like the Torah, is not essentially about um, dealing with philosophy. It has essential philosophical elements in it. Absolutely. Essentially, it's not philosophy. Right. As it's correct. It should not be. This and even Morain Evochim, which provides us with the decipherment of the Torah itself, is not really a philosophical book. You can say, no, say, I like music. It keeps me going. Okay, okay don't worry. It's fine. No, it's good. It's good. It's good. It might be your wife wanting to. Uh, <laughs> stay longer. Stay <laughs> That's what my wife does. That's a, she tells me that. So I agree with that, with that statement. Torah is not a purely philosophical book. Torah does not mean to be a pure, pure philosophical book because it doesn't want to be that because it would fail. It would fail. Spinoza at the end failed. You don't have any Spinozaists around today. Who reads Spinoza? There's three people a year that read Spinoza cover to cover. Maybe. Maybe. He failed. Brilliant man, brilliant idea and all that. He failed at the end. Torah succeeded at the end. So 4,000 years, it still has great appeal. Mass appeal to the masses and philosophical appeal to the greatest minds that we have. Good. So now the Rambam says, but now I have a problem. I have a student. The book is for students. It's not for the person who was philosophically committed already because he already got this point. He, that person was philosophically he got what, what the trial was all about. And for the person who's not committed to religion, not committed to religion, so it's not for him either. Rather, this is for that student that is in between and doesn't really get it. When the heart and the mind challenge each other, the heart, as he says, in, I'm not making this up, the Ram says in his dedicatory letter to a student. It's written for a student. It's a private communication for a student that is caught between his philosophical strivings on the one hand is what his mind tells him and those physical, emotional images that the Torah says. He can't deal with it. I don't get it, Rambam. He tells his teacher. I don't understand this. So now the Rambam writes a personal communication. This book is a personal communication to reveal the secrets and to unravel the code of the Torah itself. And yet, the Rambam realizes that if I publish this book, it's going to be a mass book. And he realizes well what the masses do to those strange ideas they cannot absorb easily. And therefore, the Rambam also has to write in code. And he tells you that. I am now writing in code as well. The essence of the Torah is a code which means it has to be written for two different audiences at the same time. We understand that the Torah does. It writes for the philosopher, it writes for the masses. The Rambam also now has to write in code for the philosophers to get my message and also there's going to be masses of people that are going to read my book. He understands that. It's published, it's out there. So I can't say what I really want to say. I have to write in code. So now, how does Torah write in code? The answer is twofold. On the one hand, the Torah will use words with multiple meanings. So the masses hear that one word and they take it one way. And the philosophical elite read that very same word, take it another way. So whereas the masses may need to know that God is a Yad HaZakah to, to portray God's power and able to redeem 
and they need to imagine God to have the Yad HaChazakah on the one hand. On the other hand, the philosopher knows that that's only a metaphor. It's not really true. That God does not have a Yad HaChazakah. So that's good. And we are all so philosophically inclined because of the Rambam's works 850 years later that we know, all of us, that that is only a metaphor. It's not literally true. Next category. Well, for example, God's filling nashal. So we all know God does not have filling nashal. Good. God, God gets angry. Now the masses needs to know they need to know that God gets angry to do the right thing. They do what's right because they're afraid of God's anger. Right? We still need that. But the philosophical elite know that God does not have emotions, does not get angry. Now there will be philosophers who come after Ramadan that will challenge that statement and raise the question. Maybe God does get angry, as David said. But God does feel displeasure and joy. Well, we're not going to cover that point right now. The Rambam does not believe that God gets angry. But the masses do need that. Masses do need that. Okay, so when you see Bayhar Af Hashem, the masses say, God gets angry and they will not do what's wrong. Because Torah is concerned of right and wrong. Torah needs right and wrong. Torah cares about you doing what's right. Give bread to the poor, hungry man. And if I don't, God will be angry with me, I'll do it. The noble, noble person who gives bread no matter how he feels about it, doesn't care about God's anger, doesn't care about God's That's what Torah is for. For that person who gives bread anyway. Torah is written for that person who's not going to give bread to the poor, hungry man. Right? And therefore, he only gives bread because God's anger. I don't want God angry with me. Who knows what he'll do if he gets angry with me. So he gives bread to the hungry man. Okay, good. So, the philosopher will take God's emotions and philosophize them. He'll understand they're not literally true as God is not physical out there. It's only... Status. Status of... Good. Okay, I'll buy that. However one wants to explain that, good. So all of that is point number one. Also, besides using words with multiple meanings to it, and the first part of Morin Nebuchim, his first 60 or 70 chapters is about translating those physical terms into philosophical terms. When it says, I will go down. Does God go up and down? No, God does not go up and down. If the Egyptian, if the Saddam people really that truly evil, God does not go up and down. So he translates what that word really means. All that's about words. Multiple meanings of words. Also, give me one other way of communicating a dual message. Quickly, I gotta run. Charlie Sack is waiting. We'll erase that on the tape. Charlie, quickly. Parables. Parables are that way which we all use of communicating a dual message. A parable could be understood in one way by the philosophical elite and another way by the philosophically untrained. Philo parables by their very nature have multiple meanings to them. So it's a great story. Stories affect you emotionally, they affect you intellectually, they're great. Parables are wonderful. If you want to get a person who what's right, tell them a story. The way to train a child ethically, a child ethically, is through narrative, through stories. There's a book that's written out, Why Johnny does not Wrong! Wrong! 
The original book was Why Johnny can, Does Not Know How to Read. The newest book on that is Why Johnny Does Not Know Right from Wrong. And this book is a great book for educators. It tells about if you lived in the 50s and 60s, you had Father Knows Best, you had My Three Sons, you had all kinds of great stories that tell a moral message. All of those. And that raised Johnny to know right from wrong. Today, what do you have? Who's that guy that did Thriller? What's his name? Thriller? Madonna? Did, he do, did she do Thriller? Jerry Springer. Jerry Springer? <laughs> Michael Jackson. So what are our kids seeing today? What narratives are they hearing? They're hearing Madonna. They're hearing Michael Jackson. They're hearing Jerry Springer. Shema Israel. Do you wonder why they don't know right from wrong? It's obvious. And this book, it's an academic, he's a professor of education at Boston University, at the BC Boston College. And he tells you, you read the book, you say, now I know my kids don't know right from wrong. What message are they getting? The movies, the music, it's horrific, it's horrible, it's absurd. The, which is the black music that tells you all kinds of horrible things about women? Rap. Rap music, is that right? Why are women raped by the black community? <laughs> it's obvious. The music that gets here is all about how the great, no, not true? Rap is good? No, I'm just saying that doesn't necessarily follow that. Well, you read the book and well, see well, what forms the ethical personality. It's a catch-22. It's a gray area. It is because it's of gray area. I don't think it's so gray. <laughs> you read the book. No, there's some rap music that talks about the, that's different. the abuse of women. Okay, that's different. That's, no, that's, more, that, that's more recent. No, good. And that's more recent, I think. Originally, originally it was... was okay, good. That's a different message. You can't condemn... Oh, I can. I can. Because no, I'm going to say over here that... Otherwise, no. you may have to condemn Torah as well because there are many people who, who study Torah and only Torah and end up doing the wrong thing. Agreed, agreed, agreed. So, no, so I'm, I'm saying if you take that version of rap music and you only hear about the abuse of women, whatever else they speak in those messages, yes, there might be another side to that. I'm not talking about that side. I'm talking about that music that... that abuse, that shapes the ethical personality of, the, of that particular kid who only hears that... Music. Maybe he does because he's catching Maybe he likes that music because he wants to abuse women. Whatever the case may be. So when you when you look at what the message the kids are getting about whatever it is that's ethically questionable, it's out there. So now we can't go put the cat back in the box. We cannot. It's out already. You cannot really change it because that's what they're doing. So now how do we deal with it? So this professor tries to say, tries to explain why John is not right from. And you think about how many images he has of violence in his games, his video games, in his movies, in his television, everything. So that's why John is not right from wrong. Good. So to Nothing went, in the 50s, nothing went wrong during those... Well, look at it. Look at the statistics of violent crime for everything. Just look at the statistics. Read the book. Yeah. Read the book. So, Torah, therefore, has to communicate through its words and through its parables, through its narrative, through its messages, because that's what shapes the ethical personality of a person. Not the philosophical abstractions. That doesn't, that doesn't affect the ethical personality of a child. Who cares about concepts? philosophical imperatives, it's categorical imperatives, he doesn't care about that. But you tell an ethical story, you tell an ethical story to a child, he gets the ethical message and that shapes the ethical personality of the children. So if you have children or grandchildren or great-grandchildren and you want to read them stories, don't read them about Hansel and Gretel. What ethical message comes from that? Rather, read them a story about an ethics, about somebody who did something right and was rewarded for it. Goodness counts. Because the ethical narrative affects and shapes the personality of the child itself. Good. So Torah, through its words and multiple meanings, relates to the philosopher and to the masses. And Torah, through its parables, 
will as well relate to the masses and to the philosophical elite. And the Ram gives us examples of the parables of Torah. The first he speaks about is Halom Yaakov. Obviously it's a parable. Good, that's one. The other one, which is we'll talk about, is Gan Eden. It has a great narrative to it, but according to the Rambam, not according to all, according to the Rambam, it's a parable because the snake does not speak in nowadays. The snake does not speak, and therefore the Rambam sees it as a parable with a profound message. So the average person needs to have a Garden of Eden type of a situation which teaches an ethical lesson, that's good for him, but for the philosophical league, they understand to extrapolate the message from it and know that it's only a parable. We'll continue next week with the other areas where the Rambam gives us a clue as to how Torah really works. Baruch Hazan, we have a minyan? We have a minyan? Bihan Yam Shabbat 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 Amen.